Welcome to the Mill Creek View, Tennessee podcast with your host, Steve Abramowitz, Editor-in-Chief of the Mill Creek View newspaper. Welcome back, everybody, to the Mill Creek View, Tennessee podcast. We are focusing on the volunteer state and our nation today with always an interesting person making a positive change in our community. This time, special guest Eric A. Jacobson. But first, for more information about the Mill Creek View podcast, visit us anywhere you get your podcasts and socials at Mill Creek View, Tennessee. While you're there, please subscribe. Welcome to our People in the News episode, where I interview people who are making an impact and are lovers of truth. Today, we are talking with Eric Jacobson. Eric A. Jacobson has been studying the American Civil War for nearly 25 years. A Minnesota native, Eric lived in Arizona for over a decade. While there, he, along with two other principals, started and ran a small business, which grew to over 150 employees by 2003. Eric left Arizona to pursue other interests and relocated to Middle Tennessee in 2005. He is the author of For Cause and For Country, a study of the affair at Spring Hill and the Battle of Franklin, a project which encompassed nearly 10 years. The book was published in March 2006 and is considered by some to be one of the most important books ever written about the 1864 Tennessee campaign. Eric's second book, The McGavick Confederate Cemetery, was published in April 2007. He is currently the chief operating officer and historian for the Battle of Franklin Trust, uh, chief executive officer, I think, which manages the Carter House and Carnton. His third book, entitled Baptism of Fire, which details the roles of three federal regiments at the Battle of Franklin, was released in September 2011. He is currently working, I think, on his fourth book. Eric lives in Spring Hill, Tennessee, with his wife, Nancy, and their two daughters. Hello, Eric, um, or Mr. Jacobson. I'm sorry about that. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good. Excellent. Oh, thank you so much for joining us. I've been looking forward to this for quite a while. Um, we had quite the storm this week. Uh, hopefully none of those landmarks you're going to talk about got any permanent damage or floated away. Are you working on um, another book currently? Uh, yeah, writing is a slow process for me. Um, plus, you know, I have a job that keeps me very busy. But yes, I'm, I'm working on a on a book about George Wagner, who was a, um, the truest definition, I think, of a volunteer soldier. Uh, rose to become a general in the Civil War and and was very, very much involved at both Spring Hill and Franklin. So he's somebody we talk about pretty regularly, and no one's ever written a biography of him. So I've started tackling that project. There you go. He's due. Uh, needs to be treated well. Um, before we get into Franklin and all the uh, uh, excitement about the battle there, I wanted to just mention uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest. Uh, was a Confederate Army general during the American Civil War and the first Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan from 1867 to 1869. They want to expunge him uh, from the history books here in Tennessee. How, how do you feel about them doing that? And what are your thoughts on Forrest's legacy? Oh, we, we you're throwing inside fastballs right away. <laughs> it gets easier, I promise. You know, Forrest is just, first of all, you know, he's a Tennessean. You know, he's obviously a you know major participant in the war. Um, I've never understood the love affair that some people have with him. You know, they they it's a sort of weird kind of hero worship. Um and he's extraordinarily problematic. And he was, you know, at the time, he's you know, he's a slave owner, but he's a slave trader. I mean, this this guy and his brothers just make gobsmacks of money 
trading in human beings. Okay. Um, and, you know, so I find his, his, his actual service in the Confederacy is probably the, the least problematic of them because, you know, I understand why a guy like Forrest did what he did militarily. Um, you know, and then he's involved in the Klan. Uh, and, and not just like some rando clan member. I mean, he's, he's, he's the big chief and, you know, I think Forrest toward the end of his life, he doesn't have this big conversion. I think that some people talk about, I think Forrest, like a lot of us, he got older and he'd been fighting, literally fighting through bullets and, and racial strife for 15 years. And I think he, um, you know, I think in the end, he was just tired. Now, the modern movement, um, I, I, you know, Forest Place in history is safe. You know, it, it, you could take down every statue and every monument of some characters and people are always going to know who they are. And so I'm not I'm not saying whether removing a statue is a good idea or not, because I think they're all each is different. They are placed at different times by different groups. They represent different things. But I can assure you and the listeners of one thing, his place in history is very secure. People will be talking about Forrest long after we're all gone. Yeah. Last year, his bus was removed from the Capitol and Cruz removed the remains of he and his wife from a Memphis park where a monument of him once stood. Mm -hmm. So it may remain, but they're trying. Um, we had a concerned parent and journalist on here not long ago that said uh, with the test scores we're seeing, out of Tennessee, they may as well leave him in there because the kids aren't learning history anyway. Uh, do you find that to be true and young people aren't interested in civil war here in their own state or not to be true? They are interested in what you're you're. Well, having, you know, lived around the country and had my kids go through the school system in Arizona and in Tennessee, you know, every state is different. There are no national public school standards. And so to, to answer your question about young people, I think that young people, let's say under 30, are interested in the war, but they're interested in the broader narrative. You know, I think a lot of people who are interested in World War II don't just focus on the war. They focus on the rise of imperialism or Nazism and fascism. And then they're interested in the, uh, the uh, period after the war, you know, and, and which, of course, wonderfully i think is going to be seen in the movie oppenheimer it's not just going to focus on one event but then you know how things stand in the late 40s and early 50s and i i think younger people are interested in antebellum history but the war but also reconstruction and then as that bleeds into um jim crow which you know you can connect to the modern era i will tell you as a product of the public school system of minnesota I got my my history was taught in high school. You know, if I were king for the day, I think these topics should be taught to high schoolers, not to second graders or to fifth graders, because there's only so much that, you know, let's say someone under 10 or 11, how much can they really absorb about the Kansas-Nebraska Act? How How much can you really talk about the god-awful horrors of slavery? How can you actually tell them about the complexities of Andrew Johnson's impeachment and the legislation of, you know, the U.S. grant, it's very difficult. And so I think that states should actually refocus on some older kids and probably have generic kind of basic world or American history 
but with really, you know, big emphasis on this period, which I'm obviously very biased about. Um, but I can tell you when I went to school, the Civil War was, you know, a, a week, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and I think if we're honest, one thing adults fall, I think, into the trap of is they see education as only applying to kids. I think adults are the ones in greatest need of education. Because if they get their head screwed on straight and learn what the facts are versus what they feel, they will raise better children or more well-adjusted kids who appreciate history. I mean, if I would have quizzed my father or grandfather, they probably couldn't have told me what the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution was, let alone when the Battle of Gettysburg was fought. But they understood the construct of history. Last thing, I'll get off my soapbox. I think the, I think the most... The thing that is lacking the most is a basic understanding of civics. Yes, they don't teach it anymore. I truly believe that most, so many people don't understand how the government is intended to work. And that has plagued my generation to the present, because I think probably my generation was among the last that actually got civics. And mm -hmm. now, to your point... History is still taught. Civics isn't. No, it's just, oh. it's just, it's just. I, I don't, and I don't understand what happened there. Right, and American history and American civics were the unique on planet Earth since civilization began. So to not teach it is actually quite a tragedy. Which is why I love having you on as a guest because what you're preserving, where kids can actually walk around, feel it, take it, maybe imagine what it was like, is. Uh, amazing. It's like when I took my kids to Israel so we could do the Stations of the Cross and see that this really happened. This isn't comic book stuff. This isn't Marvel's Disney production. Uh, same thing with what you're doing right here in Franklin, Tennessee. So what got you interested in Civil War history in the first place? Minnesota and Arizona really aren't it wasn't, the, it wasn't Civil War history. It was, um, it was just history. I, I had a as long as I can remember, it was probably just in me. I love baseball and history. And I grew up around a bunch of guys that had come home from Vietnam, but it was the older guys who'd fought World War II and Korea. And whether they'd served in the European theater and you know fought the Nazis and the Italians or the guys who came out of the South Pacific, I... I just gravitated toward their understanding of the world and, you know, their, their appreciation for America, but it wasn't, you know, a bunch of, you know, chest thumping patriots. They were just guys like us who had found themselves in extraordinarily trying times. And that, that eventually led to the civil war because I was, I was very aware of, you know, the South and the Confederacy. Um, but I I began to get a, a a better understanding of of how important the war was because we nearly destroyed ourselves. And those two sides were not fighting for remotely close to the same principles. And I think that spinning forward now all these years later, I think we're coming back to a better understanding of how important our civil war was. Um, imagine, for example, 
the 1930s and the 1940s with with the United States that doesn't exist. You know, that it had been destroyed in the Civil War. I can't even imagine who would have stepped up to try and save the world because, you know, when the band breaks up, it doesn't get back together. And if somehow the Confederate effort to form a separate nation had had been successful and you've got about 40 percent of what we know as the United States hadn't even been settled, we would be like a balkanized version of, you know, we'd be balkanized America, I think. Mm -hmm. And I, and I have, so I think, I think that that's what led me down this path. I was always interested in the nuts and bolts of battles and campaigns and characters, whether it was Forrest or Lee or Grant or Sherman and so forth. I could talk to you all day about that, but I was interested. I was much more interested. I was so incredibly um, inspired by these guys that had fought those wars I mentioned. And they knew that there was this bigger story. They had just done their part. And I think that bigger story when it comes to our war is, is once again um, being discussed. And I think that's actually, it's difficult and it can be very controversial, but I think it's it's healthy because this country for all of its shortcomings and imperfections has has done a tremendous amount of good in the world. And, and we never would have had a chance to become what the United States became if we had degenerated into anarchy through a civil war that broke us, that ripped us apart, which is why Lincoln remained so committed to preserving the Union and, and then ending slavery at all cost. We would look a lot more like Europe today, where the South is uh, poor and the North has got where all the wealth, uh, the engine of Germany, and not a lot of good things come out of Germany. Oppenheimer may have, but it's good and bad. And so that's, you're right, just like the, the American Revolution went this direction, the French Revolution went a totally different dark Jacobin version, we would look a lot like that if Lincoln hadn't have preserved it. So, okay, I don't, I'm going to run out of time with you, as I always do with every guest, because there's so <laughs> much interesting stuff to talk about. But after the fall of Atlanta, September 1, 1864, General John Bell Hood and his 30,000 men army raced into Tennessee, hoping to divert Major General William T. Sherman attention, his attention by threatening his supply base at Nashville. Sherman did not take the bait and instead dispatched Major General John Schofield's Army of the Ohio, 30,000 strong, so matched, to protect Nashville, while the rest of Sherman's army simply left their supply line behind and marched to the Atlantic coast, burning everything in their wake, forcibly securing whatever they needed to sustain themselves from the Confederate citizens in their path. 25,000 Union soldiers under General Major General George Thomas were entrenched in Nashville if Schofield could reach them before Hood, he would command a numerical advantage on the battlefield. Hood's hopes for a successful campaign rested on defeating Schofield before the two forces joined. What is it about the three buildings, Carter House, Carnton, and Ripa Villa, that keep tourists coming back for it? Because that's what happened right there. I think it's a little bit of everything we have already talked about, but obviously the a couple of days at the end of November 1864 is the center of our universe. You know, it is um, what we have told people for many, many years. This is the last great campaign of the American Civil War. You know, this is this is after Shiloh and it's after Gettysburg and it's after Vicksburg. And as you noted, it's after the fall of Atlanta. 
And, you know, just like some of those battles late in World War II, it was savage and it was awful, but they had to be fought. And these two armies, which were, you know, long, um, had, had long opposed one another. Some of these guys have been fighting as far back as early 1862 at Shiloh. Um, the stakes are high. You know, Sherman's cut loose, moving east. Grant has uh, Lee's army trapped in a in a chokehold near Petersburg, Virginia. So John Bell Hood has the only mobile Southern army. And his intent was to try and take Nashville. He didn't have to hold it. Just take it, cause chaos, drag the war out into the spring. And, you know, even if Hood is successful, I don't think it changes the outcome of the war. But, you know, dragging the war out four, five, six months, what changes how the end plays out. And, you know, nobody knew in the autumn of 1864 that the war would be over in the spring. You know, they thought it was going to be over in 61, then it was 62, and then well, maybe it'll be over in 63, you know, and and that's why Spring Hill and Franklin are important. We have more visitation than ever. We we just finished our, our fiscal year runs July 1 to June 30. Best year ever. Attendance is great. We've snapped back to where we were before COVID. Great revenue numbers. And, you know, people are pouring out. So, that's the center of the world, center of the universe. But we have so many young people coming out who want to know about slavery. They want to know about the politics. They want to know how do we get from the Declaration of Independence through the Constitution to civil war. And they, they, you know, they want to talk about Forrest, but they don't want to hero worship him. But they want to know about him. They want to know how did this guy end up with his bust in the Capitol? You know, they have those questions. They want to know how the Civil War connects to civil rights. So that's why the, our our great fortune is that we have guests who probably come for 20 different reasons. Some of them like old houses. Some of them want to hear the story of the battle. Some of them want to hear all of it. Some of them want to hear about slavery. Some want to hear about Reconstruction. And so we offer lots of different tours. You know, you got your standard fair house tours, but we do specialty tours. We're open seven days a week. So it's great. I, I The field of history is as vibrant in many places as it's ever been. And I think sometimes on the outside, you know, there have always been demagogues and ideologues, and they will tell you that it's never been worse. And, you know, we're... You know, we're close to another civil war. And I'm like, no, we're not. You know, we're we're we don't not. even have uniforms. No. That's right. And well, tell, slavery, tell us and about the tell us about the, the slavery doesn't exist. So you know what what right. what are we fighting over? Yeah. Um, anyways, I think it's great. It's one Medi- we're fighting over Medicare. But um uh, tell us about the Carter House. What do people see at the Carter House? So Carter House is built about 1830. It's a pretty modest um farm home at you know, at, back in the day was kind of on the outskirts of town. Fountain Branch Carter built it. He and his family lived there for almost 30 years before the war. Um, it's a farm that grew Middle Tennessee staples, corn, grain. He did grow some cotton, 28 slaves. And then it became headquarters for the U.S. Army on November 30th, 1864. Uh, U.S. Army sets up a defensive position early that morning. Confederate Army attacks that afternoon. And the Carter House and the occupants, which uh, were about two dozen people, were trapped in the basement as this horror played out all around them. And then a Carter son, Todd Carter, was mortally wounded in the fighting. So as they say, truth is stranger than fiction. I mean, 
he he was literally shot down not on his like home in an abstract sense i mean it was his home and um but it's also a story of survival you know they lived there for years after the war and so we we literally tell guests about 80 years worth of history and we try and do it in about 60 minutes. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna try to do it in 20 with you. Right. Um, so Franklin was pivotal battle in the entire war, as you said. Lee had Union, Lee had the Union pinned down here until they escaped back to Nashville and re-fortified. I think I have that about right. Uh could the war have ended with the South winning right here? Um, besides that. Six generals and many other top commanders died, so it wasn't going to happen, but just hypothetically, uh, the fighting force of the South's Army of Tennessee was severely diminished, but Hood continued to chase victorious Union General John M. Schofield all the way back to Nashville, which by car these days without traffic is about 30 minutes on foot and horseback and and carriage ride. I'm sure that was probably a a full day. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, could your, your question was, could they have won? No, I think the South was almost doomed from the beginning. I think the uh, states that broke away had one or two legitimate opportunities to to win, and that was early. When I and I mean early, like '62, maybe they had a chance in '63. But hey, man, you know a lot of people today, with all the benefit of hindsight, will tell you that. Um, Japan and Germany were doomed on December 8th, 1941. We just didn't know it for four years because there was no way um, that they were going to be able numerically to stand up to what we brought to the table. And for the 11 states that broke away, they were outnumbered five to one from the beginning. And to me, that's been an undertold story of the war too, because the, the elites the wealthy, the politicians, and the slave owners literally sent poor whites um, off to fight their war and bled them to death all over the South. You know, they they effectively killed about a third of their own population. And that's a shame because, you know, I don't know how slavery would have ended, but but they they were they started a war that many people did not want to initiate and they paid a terrible price for that. Yeah. South Carolina was a big motivator for that. Um, you have a slavery and the enslaved tour. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what do people learn on that tour? Well, that's a great question. And that's a, that's a tour that has become ever more popular over the years. Uh, you know, the, the front end, that's a 90 minute tour. So some of it's in the home, and we offer that at all the sites we manage. So a little bit of it's in the in the the big house, but a lot of it's outside. A lot of it's, um, you know, we there are existing um, slave structures at all the properties, but the the front end of the tour is really the nuts and bolts of the system, and actually explaining to guests that African slavery, which is how we describe it was extraordinarily unique um, in the history of the world because antiquity slavery is very different. Romans and the Greeks, for example, for example, would just grab whoever they could. And slavery that exists today is almost completely illegal. So it's all underground. Um, this slavery was legal and it was the enslavement of one race. So we we talk about how how it originated, how it grew, 
and then through the 1800s, how it was legislated and argued over, and that by 1860, with the rise of an anti-slavery party, the Republicans, uh, Southern Democrats, they were brutally honest about one thing. They said if a Republican ever got the White House, they would they would secede. And they did. And they did. and Lincoln, they just underestimated his commitment, but they also underestimated the will of, of Northerners to hold together the Union. They, they really didn't believe that they would do it. And they did. Because the concept of the United States, as we know it, had begun to gel in the North. You know, immigrants, uh, Scandinavians, Germans, Irish, but even Welsh who had come over here and were farming and, you know, whether it was Illinois or upstate New York, they had begun to see the place they lived as part of a larger construct. But the South was still a state-centric attitude and that the states could do what they wanted. And, you know, that's that that's, that ends up being a big rub. And then with slavery bound into everything, which isn't just about politics, it's about race. Uh, you just had a powder keg. And yeah. then I remember you know, in the uh, the scene in Gone with the Wind in the book, actually, I don't know if it's in the movie where Ashley, I think, was one of those patriotic uh, Southerners who thought that uh, every one confederate soldier could beat at least five if not ten northerners as if it was uh, a pushover because of our the chivalry that was down here or whatever the case may be but obviously as you spelled out very clearly the numbers were overwhelming it was inevitable uh and they ended up fighting a losing battle uh for the greater good of the country ultimately but not at the time and not for the the young men that were fighting age back then the other tour you have is the behind the scenes tour uh what do you show people there well, the behind-the-scenes tour is a, a little bit of it's is just really the classic house tour, but we take people into places that you don't see on any other tour. So the behind-the-scenes tour at Carnton, you end up uh, in the basement. You go up to the third floor, which we don't take any other guests to. Uh, behind-the-scenes tour is the only way to see the second floor of Carter House, which is a very it, it's a very tight. Uh, area with a couple of bedrooms. So it's a, it's a special way to see that. And then the behind the scenes tour at Ripa Villa um, is a little bit like Carnton where you go into the basement and you see really the, the scope and the size, especially of that house. Um, and the behind the scenes tour is also kind of cool to show people how homes like this had to be modernized, um, especially for visitation you know, just showing them how an HVAC system works in an old historic home <laughs> is kind of fun for the right guests. But um, yeah, that's a that's more of a niche tour. But, you know, that's why we offer it. There are certain people that's that's what they want. They want something that nobody else, you know, gets to do. So nooks and crannies. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so I, fi I find this fascinating. A few years ago, maybe five years ago now, I collected uh, commemorative coins. And the Civil War ones, Grant, Antietam, Gettysburg, for example, were, were hard to find, harder than the rest, uh, because they were gaining a new popularity. Are, are people getting reacquainted with our history, but not just from Tennessee, but internationally? Do you see a lot of tourists from other countries walking through there wanting to know every nook and cranny of the Civil War history we have? We we do, and um, our foreign guests are, you know, I would say primarily are English, um, but there's a lot of Canadians, if you, you know, 
it's literally just across the border, but you know, they, their society is different than ours. They send uh, us their smoke right now. Yeah, that's, that's right. We saw some of that here the other day. Um, but English, Irish, some Germans, um, Australians, huh. um, you know, a few from New Zealand, uh, German visitors, I have to tell you, are extraordinarily interesting, especially Germans who grew up in the Cold War um, or who had a who have a family connection to World War II. And I've had some very, very revealing and sometimes heartfelt conversations with how they have had to deal with their history you know, of, of World War II, obviously, is what I'm referring to. Yeah, I'm curious, is that because of a, being a vanquished society or on the wrong side of, say, a ideology well, like Nazism or something a little, like that? A little bit of both, but more the latter. You know, when you have someone whose grandfather or great-grandfather, for example, was in the Wehrmacht, here's this, I'll never forget this, because this is a little bit of, I think, what we deal with when it comes to our war. There's a lack of shame with many people in this country. Shame was clearly planted into German society that what they had done was wrong. And even if you were just in the Wehrmacht, it's not like you didn't know the world you lived in. And we've finally in recent years when I say recent years, probably the last 20 or 30, which is why there's been such a revolution of thought about monuments, about the Confederate flag, about Nathan Bedford Forrest or whomever. Because you can't compare any of the participants of the American Civil War to Nazis. But we have we have acted as if the two sides that fought our war were just had little minor disagreements, right? We're all just Americans. I was like, oh boy, what a cop out that is. Yeah. Um, you know, you can't, and, you can't accept the Emancipation Proclamation and agree with what you just said, right? That that's right. And the greatest, I I tell people just for fun, because we've had so many monument questions over the years. And I said, here's a quiz. See if you can answer it. The greatest opponent of Confederate monuments in the 1890s and early 20th century was who? And generally, if people go, I don't know, they'll say, well, maybe black people. And I'm like, eh, you're wrong. It was U.S. veterans. Mm -hmm. The guys who'd fought the Civil War did not want to see Confederate monuments splattered all over national parks. And so because they couldn't get them in the parks, that's why they ended up in the public squares. They ended up all over. They, they figured out a way to put up the monuments just in other places. Wow. Okay. That's very interesting. Yeah. And U.S. veterans were, they were, I mean, the GAR, the Grand Army of the Republic, which was a veterans organization, kind of like the VFW is today. They were incredibly powerful. They lobbied Congress. They fought tooth and nail. Um, you know, they didn't want Confederates punished. They didn't want anything punitive, but they also didn't want to see that flag shoved in their face. And they didn't want to see monuments being put up to tell subsequent generations that these were all heroes because they were like, mm, you know, <laughs> George or uh, Ulysses S. Grant and Robert E. Lee aren't the same. No. Interesting. So no. I, I think it's, I think it's good. I, I, I've been, I've been doing this 20 years and I think it's healthy what we're going through. It's not easy, but you know, sometimes to, 
to get to a good place, you got to go through some, some, uh, some spasms. Yeah, I hope it gets closure so we can once and for all move on. But um, each year you commemorate the Battle of Franklin and its role in the American story through the perspective of the November 30th, 1864 Battle of Franklin and its 10,000 casualties. Visitors have the opportunity to learn about the impact of the American Civil War. Uh, will you be having that again this November? We will continue to commemorate the Battle of Franklin as well as now the Battle of Spring Hill. Uh indefinitely we did it with luminaries for gosh almost 15 years so last year we did something a little different we actually we had some luminaries in the homes but what we did is we we commemorated the battle by bringing people into the homes where civilians were located and really talked about on the anniversary you know in in many ways, almost like we do every day on tour. And we wanted to try to get people to think about, instead of just focusing on the soldiers, let's talk about all of the people who were impacted um, in, in these homes, take them into the most personal places. And I thought it was incredibly um, successful. So we, we'll always um, commemorate it, remember it, but it may not be the same thing every year because, you know, Doing the same old thing every, every every time gets gets a little bit old, and you want to keep attracting yeah. new people. Yeah, well, 160 years, you got to keep it fresh, right? I mean, that's right. Yeah. that's the whole goal of it. Uh, yeah. But annually, you do have the legacy dinner, mm -hmm. uh, is an appreciation dinner for those that have helped make transformational changes to the work that is accomplished 365 days a year for now 160 years. Uh, what are some highlights from those dinners and some special people that you want to shout out to that have helped? Well, the most recent one we have, so that's a, it's a basically a, a donor dinner. Um, and at the, at our dinner this past April, we gave our legacy award to our former, our, our board chair, longtime board chair, Gary Rosenthal, who he and I worked together, you know, on, on everything we're talking about, but we also steered the organization through COVID. And so, you know, my belief is that uh, legacy awards and 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 you know special people aren't always about how much money they give. It's sometimes how much skin they have in the game and their commitment. And Gary was one of those people. That being said, a few years ago we gave. I was part of a Fuller Story, what we called the Fuller Story Initiative, in downtown Franklin, which was the installation of a statue commemorating USCT soldiers, black soldiers, as well as interpretive signage. And so we honored three of the pastors that I worked with and the city administrator, Eric Stuckey. So, you know, every year it's different. Well, one year we gave the legacy award to um, a staff member who had worked, who still works here. And, and she, we actually calculated like how many tours she may have given through the years. And then we're factoring in how much money was generated by all those tourists. And I mean, it was some ridiculous thing, like $150,000. And we're like, you know, so she's contributed to the success of the organization in a way that probably not a lot of people think of. You know, she's she's here doing what we do all the time, which is give tours and tell right. people about right. why yeah. history matters. Speaking of that, uh, we talked a little bit about K through 12 education. Uh, how does Franklin Trust help educators teach? Simplest answer is we 
offer our assistance, um, but we're also we're willing to help whenever we're asked. You know, there there were some in the fall of 2019, there was a major curriculum issue in the Williamson County School District about slavery, how to teach it, um, how to talk about this difficult subject. So we we had some very, I think, good meetings about, you know, not only what to do, but what not to do, you know. And one of the to not do's is imagine being a slave owner and how would you punish your slaves? Okay. That's <laughs> not a question that should ever be asked. Um, and so we, we just offer, you know, assistance because we have experience, you know, in dealing with the people every day and what they're willing to absorb. And, and truthfully, when you're talking about children, you know, they have, their parents are adults. So sometimes what we see from guests is very much what that child may experience at home from their parents. Because sometimes, you know, teachers will do a great job and then it all gets mucked up at home. Yeah, for sure. And <laughs> so you took 10 years of your life to give us For Cause and For Country, a study of the affair at Spring Hill and the Battle of Franklin. Tell us about what kept you motivated to accomplish that and what lessons you learned about this area that stayed with you. And I'm curious, is that Spring Hill like right up the street or is that Spring Hill uh, that I believe is in Virginia? There was no, a battle of Spring Hill there too. No, oh, that's Cool Spring. Sorry, Cool yeah, Spring. No, it's, it's, it's Spring Hill just south of here, right where the GM plant is. It is. Um, yeah, because yeah, that's, that's the day before this. So the battle of Spring Hill uh, spins into the battle of Franklin. Um, what kept me motivated? Just the story, but I wrote most of that in, in Arizona. So I, one of the other motivations is I would travel here once, maybe twice a year. And let me tell you, if you've been watching the temperatures in Arizona, you know, people will say, Oh, but yeah, but that's a dry heat. And I'm like, yeah, 115 is just hot. So, you know, I would get on a plane and come here and this area is just so beautiful and the people are wonderful and it's rich with history. So it was a motivation to just keep digging. And yeah, you know, it came out, that book is now been 17 years. And I mean, that's what got me into this field. I was hired at, at Carton as a tour guide. And over the years, I, you know, bumped up and then when there was an opening i became the ceo which i've been doing that now for 12 or 13 years um so the book was great and i still think to this day that my my co-author and i joked with ourselves we were wondering if in our lifetime would ever would anybody else ever write anything better is not the right word but would they could anybody top it right and so far nobody has <laughs> and That's... and because i don't know maybe nobody's crazy enough to do it but you know i think it still stands the test of time all right so i got about five minutes left with you uh which is unfair because i didn't want to get into all three of your books but the second book the mcgavick confederate cemetery uh do kids tour mcgavick confederate cemetery now and what's your favorite thing to discuss out of that book and, uh, and that... anybody who visits carton can walk through the cemetery because where i'm sitting it's literally 150 yards behind me I mean, it's literally right outside the door. Um, you know, two things. There's individual stories, uh, which be for for because of the lack of time, but there are just a lot of individual stories. But collectively, 
it always makes me go, it makes me go back to when I started writing. And I think about these poor guys, you know, fighting in the most god-awful combat one could even, you, you couldn't make this in your imagination worse than it was. And they died on, you know, a beautiful fall day, evening, and they were dying, you know, in piles, in waves. And sometimes when you stand in the middle of the cemetery and it's so quiet and peaceful, it's such a contradiction to the violence of their death in this quiet solemnity of where they rest today. Yeah. And then I think sometimes, and I know I've, I've, I've taken some heat for this, sometimes I look at them as Confederates and I think, you know, they had to die. This war had to be fought for the United States to become one thing. And so I think in a way their death did have purpose. Probably not the purpose they intended, but it had to happen that way. And I think that's important to sometimes remember too. Yeah, I've seen the uh, beaches of Normandy and Omaha Beach, and it's a very similar situation, beautiful solemnity. There's the ocean, there's the sand, there's the beach, but then you remember that men fought and died uh, in horrific situations to basically save the world from fascism and Nazism. Um, the American Battlefield Trust, it also does have a Cool Springs battlefield, and I thought it was the Cool Springs, like I said, but in Brentwood, but it's over there in Virginia. 800 people died there. Um, just to make sure everyone understands, Franklin had 8,500, so a scale 10 times uh, that Hood had against Schofield, and of course, 22,700 died wounded or missing at Antietam. Uh, and that was the worst one, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Robert Hicks makes uh, efforts to preserve and recover the Civil War history of the Franklin battlefield as well. Um, what treasures are there still to be recovered? You know, there's land as it becomes available, which are usually small tracts that are very expensive. You know, nothing in Williamson County is cheap. So it's just acquiring what we can, where we can, but through the efforts of people like Robert and others, over 15 to 16 years, we have uh, purchased and thus preserved, or in many cases reclaimed, about 360 to 370 acres of two battlefields. And it's cost almost $20 million, but it's all been worth it. And, and today, if you've never visited before and you walk the battlefields that have now been, we have two battlefield parts, actually three, if you include Spring Hill, it doesn't look like it did 15 years ago. And that's a good thing because, you know, there, there's actually a functioning park adjacent to each of the homes. And so the experience for visitors is probably much more one that is familiar. You know, I know years ago when people would visit Franklin, it'd be like, where's the battlefield? You know, you were standing on it, but it didn't look like it. You know, if you're, if you're standing in, well, actually it's part of Harlem today, you wouldn't know where the Battle of Brooklyn even was. You know, you look around and you're like, well, Washington and the British fought here. You know, there's, it's just yeah. gone. Right next to the gas station and the Walmart. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, right. Yeah. So, okay. So last uh, question, I hate to do it, but we are out of time. Do you think there are any remnants of what the Confederacy stood for, not just slavery, because we all agree now that is evil, bad, and thank God it's gone from our union, God willing, from the earth one day. But was there anything, maybe certain states' rights issues, that had we codified them into federal law, 
the country would be better off today? Oh, gosh, that's a good question. There's two, there are two things in the Confederate Constitution, which one is probably much more practical than the other. The Confederate Constitution allowed for only a single six-year term to be president. I think that's an interesting concept. Um, I doubt we'll ever, you know, why would we go that route? Two, year, right. two terms of eight of four years each probably is not a whole lot different. But the other one is that the president of the Confederacy had a line item veto option, which would be, I think, wonderful from certain, you know, we fight about budgetary issues, but I think that probably gives, I think it's almost unconstitutional because it gives the president basically some responsibilities in the legislative area that were never intended to be blurred. But imagine if the president could say, hey, I've got this $600 billion bill, but here's 50 billion of it that I think is garbage and we're gonna cut it out. That'd be fantastic. But after reconstruction or during it, they didn't treat Tennessee very nicely. So you get some president in there that says no more soup for Tennessee, then we'd have to suffer for that. But Eric, yeah, I yeah, would love sure. to have you on again sometime. We, we have so much to cover. It's such a great place, such a great tour that you offer, but we are at the end. So tell everyone where they can go to find out more about you, about the trust, um, if you have social media, anything you have coming up, current events, please. Uh, easiest way to reach us, social media. We've got Facebook pages for Carter House, Carnton, and Ripa Villa. But, of course, the old standard, which is still, you know, like television, it's not going anywhere, is a website, boft.org. Uh, tons of information about who we are, tours. You can buy tickets online, information about the sites, um, about characters involved, soldier bios, information about slavery, uh, and actually a lot of information about the founding of the country, because we actually talk a lot about the, the, the Declaration of Independence and the idea of natural born equality, because that's central to the understanding of the Civil War as well. So lots of ways to connect with us. And, you know, as far as events, all we do is give tours, man. That's all we do. We talk to people all the time. So just come out and visit us. You can You can come see us. We're never closed except on major holidays. So we're, um, you know, we'd, we'd love to have you come out. Great. I hope this uh, interview will um, encourage some folks to bring their kids and check it out while the summer is still with us. All right. So thank you very much. Have a great day. Thank you for having me. Choosing the right mortgage for your home financing depends on so many factors. Working with a mortgage lender that offers a broad selection of mortgage programs is key. At One Trust Home Loans, they have helped many homeowners reach their home financing goals because they listen to anticipate your home financing goals and dreams. They aren't salesy, so for those 55 and older, you can trust them to help people not just survive, but thrive with extra cash flow. At One Trust, service is everything. To speak with a mortgage specialist about your home financing goals, call Matt Helton, Nolensville Branch Manager at 615-400-6764. Be sure to tell him Steve and Steve from MCView sent you. Calcon Mutual Mortgage, LLC, DBA, One Trust Home Loans is an equal housing lender, NMLS 46375. 
All products are not available in all states. All options are not available on all programs. All programs are subject to borrow and property qualifications. Rates, terms, and conditions are subject to change without notice. For more information on reverse mortgages, visit onetrusthomeloans.com slash reverse dash mortgage disclosures. I don't understand. All right, eight shows with a Tennessee summertime flu, and if that's going to be the only glitch we have out of eight of them, I'll take it. Welcome to the Steve and Steve segment of our show where we cover what we just heard. Producer Steve, what did you think of our guest, Eric Jacobson and Battle of Franklin Trust? Well, as usual, you brought on a great uh, individual to be interviewed, and I learned so much about uh, your region and the battles, and I myself having traveled throughout the uh, southeast and the Northeast, um, looking at battlefields, cemeteries, and Steve, uh, no matter which side you come on, I'm telling you what, the devastation that took place during the Civil War is beyond imagination. It took a long time for the South to recover, and it took a long time for the North and the South to bond, and even to this day, there's some rifts. Yeah, it's amazing. You say go out to, you know, that's what I did when I went to Pennsylvania and visited Gettysburg. You get on a bus, you take a long trip to get there. For me, if I drive from here to downtown Franklin, which goes past the grocery store and the gas station, that's the Battle of Franklin. It's right there. If I drive to church and I go from here to Berry Farms, that's another battle of Middle Tennessee. So it, basically this entire region, Williamson County, was created on the, the the battlefield so it's pretty cool i haven't been walking out there yet to see uh you know bullets on the ground or or find metals or anything because there's snakes and you know i don't want to deal with that but uh you could anyway let's get to the show holy smokes we are staring down the barrel of august coming soon only one week left in july whoever said time flies first was maybe smartest guy or gal of all time today is the day producer steve you can mark your calendar. I don't know if you have yet. You're going to want to celebrate this. Every July 20th from 2023 on is the day the U.S. officially paid more money on servicing our national debt than on the U.S. military. Yep. Military budget, $751 billion. Debt interest, $852 billion. I warned you, Uncle Sam, long ago. So did Ronald Reagan. In 1986, he said, unfortunately... Congress consistently brings the government to the edge of default before facing its responsibilities. This brinksmanship threatens the holders of government bonds and those who rely on Social Security and veterans' benefits. Interest rates should skyrocket. Instability would occur in financial markets, and the federal deficit would soar. The United States has a special responsibility to itself and the world to meet its obligations. It means we have a well-earned reputation for reliability and credibility, two things that set us apart from much of the world. That, and we can print money out of thin air and fractionally reserve lend it at 10 times the deposit, unless you're Lehman Brothers, and then you try 100 times, but alas, not forever. Okay, so let's start with likely the least smart gal of all time, not like the person who quoted time, one of the top three for sure, or bottom three if you prefer. This is the president of the country's, the best country on earth's, and leader, democratically elected, mind you, leader of about 3 million public school employees. She's insane. 
Listen to this very recent address to her shock troops. Believe it or not, this is the closing of Becky Pringles. That's who we're talking about. Becky Pringles' latest speech to the NEA was a Hitlerian performance. And if you think I'm misquoting that, listen, this is not a casual comparison. Clip number one. Using what we know now about the science of learning and development, we will design an equitable learning and assessment system that sees our students as whole humans, all of them in the fullness of their glory and beauty, their talent and creativity, their resilience and their complexity in all of their magnificence. We will fight for our rights as professionals, demanding the respect and the authority that reflects our deep knowledge of our professions, our commitment to continuous learning and professional excellence with fierce passion and resolve. We will rise from this chaos and the challenge of a pandemic that threatened to diminish and destroy us with renewed strength and unwavering determination. We will lead through this attack on truth and democracy. We will fight for honesty in education. With persistence and perseverance, we will lead the transformation of public education, of teaching and learning, of our noble professions NEA, we are not waiting for anyone to rescue us. We've got this. We've got this. We've got this. We will never allow any darkness to dim our light. We will stand together in our passion and our purpose. We will stand in our power. Imagine what's possible. And then we, NEA, will make it so. Or a little guy with a funny mustache. Of course, she got a standing ovation because anyone that didn't stand and clap likely escorted out and never seen again in public. But wait, there's more. This isn't a new thing for, again, president of 3 million teachers of America, Union Unite! And Clip number two. Florida, we will preserve and strengthen a democracy that was steeped in the power of the Constitution of the United States of America. It is we, the people, NEA, we the people, we the people, all of us deserve the right to be truly free. Right. That's right. Or right. derangement from earlier in her speech. Don't know how any normal person could sit through that yelling and foaming at the mouth. Uh, that is expected of us. Yes, this, this is her moment. still. I can hear my father saying, Rebecca, look up at the sky. The sun is still shining and it will rise again tomorrow.
NEA. You get to be the champions for our students. Look up, NEA. You get to defend our democracy. Look up, NEA. The sun is still shining and it will rise again tomorrow. You will not be defeated. You will never give up. You will never give in. Every day, all day, you will be centered in the work that we have been called to do together. Every day, all day, we will embrace our resistance as joy. Every day, all day. Uh, she'd have to prove her wins and losses. You'd have to be successful to be something like that. But, I mean, where have we heard this before? This is the cadence and the dialectic. I mean, you might as well put that in German. Uh, again, these are teachers. Are the teachers at war with the rest of the country or a opposing force somewhere else out there in the universe? The kids? I don't know what the hell she's talking about. But, again, not new. Here's her in 2022, Becky Pringle's Greatest Hits. Uh, sorry, Steve. I can't get it up. It's just not running. There's a pill for that. Ah, thanks, Steve. You know what I'm talking about. I can't get the clip to run. <laughs> okay, so that's the kind of person she is. I think we get the point for uh, that. And they want her for a leader. She's been reelected. Very well-spoken orator with perfect evangelical fervor to sell their garbage. But just today and recent past, I'm sorry to say, um, I'm giving Randy Weingarten a break today, but Becky, with more members, could be worse. In 2009, the National Education Association, the nation's biggest teachers union, recommended that teachers read Alinsky's books, calling him an inspiration to anyone contemplating action in their community and to every organizer. The NEA praised union organizer Paul Booth a day after his death in 2018 for his ties to Alinsky. Paul was a contemporary and protege of Saul Alinsky, with whom he worked to fight for social, economic, environmental justice for urban communities. Sound familiar? Explains a letter on the NEA website by NEA President Lily Eskison Garcia, three names, watch out, and Executive Director John Stocks. In 1985 interview with Insider's Report, a publication of Concerned Educators Against Forced Unionism, Former NEA leader John Lloyd minced no words in describing the close relationship between the teachers union, Alinsky, and the union organizers' work. To understand the NEA, to understand the union, read Saul Alinsky, said Lloyd, former president of the Kansas NEA, a chapter in Massachusetts, and director of the NEA's Uniserve. Quote, if you read Rules for Radicals, you will understand the NEA more profoundly than reading anything else because the whole organization was modeled on that kind of behavior, which was really begun when the NEA used Saul Linsky as a consultant to train their own staff. Now, does it make sense? Who's the dedication to? Yeah, that guy. Ah, uh, yes, and the rest is history. But not for Bill Gates. But those were not Gates' concerns. I'm going to read the little blurb from you. He was on a mission to transform American education, and he would start with the high schools. This is from Politico back in 2010, which he saw as an embarrassment, almost a personal affront. They were, quote, obsolete, he declared, 
When I compare our high schools to what I see when I'm traveling abroad, he said, I'm terrified for our workforce of tomorrow. When he founded K-12 in 2000, one of his two primary financial backers was Michael Milken, the disgraced junk bond king of the 1970s and 80s. The other was Larry Ellison, the billionaire co-founder of Oracle and the fourth richest person in America at the time. The first chairman and chief prolestatizer of K-12 was William Bennett, who had served as undersecretary under Ronald Reagan and drug czar under George H.W. Bush. Bill Gates' small school initiative and the Packard Milken Ellison Virtual Schools Venture are just a few vivid examples of the dangers inherent in a school reform movement driven by millionaires and billionaires with no real knowledge or understanding of public education. So Bill, not a vaccinologist, not a farmer, not a college graduate, not even a good software developer who went to Harvard for a month or two, had this to say, clip number five to see as your legacy in 10, 15 years. Uh, of the new work? Of the new work, yeah. yeah. Of your new function. Well, I'm, I set very ambitious goals because I'm quite optimistic. If you look at, say, the, the 20 diseases uh, that our Global Health Program goes after, I'd hope that within 15 years, over half of those, we could have had a very dramatic impact. Uh, some of them will prove to be harder than others. For example, AIDS, uh, we will have made an improvement, but not the dramatic improvement probably in that time frame. Malaria, perhaps, and a number of the other ones, uh, we have things in the pipeline. So, you know, huge change in the uh, mortality rates in developing countries, which then has this effect of reducing population growth. That's the, this big benefit that then makes everything like education and nutrition a lot easier. So I, I have very high expectations there. And we actually use these dashboards internally at the foundation to make everything be quite numeric. You know, we're trying to be rigorous about that and even share those so that people can see, oh, you fell short of uh, what you had in mind. And then we get to explain if we have any lessons that might uh, be learnable from other foundations. So I think there's some things about uh, how we go about things that I hope uh, those learnings can have an impact. There's the specific work in, in the different divisions, health, development, and the U.S. education work. Uh, that in 15 years, boy, we, uh, you know, by then we will have spent a lot of money. Three billion a year, 15 years, that uh, adds up. Uh, and for that, uh, people should have a very high expectation of, of what we can do. Thank you, Bill, for having Do you notice how Klaus said function? Like they all have a function. Bill Gates and Klaus Schwab in 2008, 15 years. Welcome to 2023, people. Sociopath, megalomaniac oligarch Bill Gates told the then unknown Schwab during a meeting of the WEF, quote, there will be a great change in the death rate in developing countries, which has the effect of reduced population growth. And that's the great benefit to everything. I don't make this shit up. Uh-huh. Nothing but love for us. That Billy Gates, is his ex-wife still hiding on an island with 24-7 security? I think so. Clip number six. I think we need to educate humanity. We need to educate doctors. Um, we, we certainly need an alternative healthcare system, which is more designed in promoting health and welfare and well-being rather than being driven by pharma. 
What's astonishing is the U.S. makes up 5% of the world's population, yet we consume 50% of the world's prescription medication, 50%. We consume 80% of the opiates. So we have an obsession in this country with the use of prescription drugs, which do not cure disease. Let's be clear. What they do is they keep people chronically addicted to medication. So rather than focus on lifestyle changes and healthy eating and healthy living, um, which, which can make a major impact on disease, we're so obsessed with using medications which do not work and may have side effects and people are addicted for their life. So I think we need to change the way medicine functions. Dr. Paul Merrick, the pill-popping nation. America consumes half of all prescription drugs with only 5% of the global population. The U.S. also consumes 80% of the opiates. So rather than focus on lifestyle changes and healthy eating and healthy living, which can make a major impact on disease, we're so obsessed with using medications which do not work and may have side effects and people are addicted for their life. So Bill and Becky and Larry and Michael Milken knew just what markets they wanted to go after when they ran out of worlds to conquer, like Alexander, with their desktop software. Easy pickings. Why cure diseases for a one-time fee when we can just treat them and keep them as a consumer for life instead? Good business model. It's the Gillette razor blade model, as a matter of fact. That's how you get Monica Bertagnoli, Joe Biden's new director of the National Institute of Health whose nomination Anthony Fauci personally advocated for has shocking ties to big pharma. Monica Bertagnoli is the principal investigator on numerous grants funded by the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world. In 2022 alone, her grants brought in $58,975,000,000 in awards for the largest pharmaceutical companies since 2016. Awards from the leading pharmaceutical companies have steered $354 billion into her research programs. Funds have flowed through to her salary at Brigham and Women's Hospital Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, where she is a researcher. On her financial disclosure forms for her nomination to lead the NIH, which covers the current year, 2023, and the preceding calendar year, 2022, she reported $1,609,198 $1,609,198 in salary and bonuses from Brigham and Women's slash Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. The Hospital and Cancer Research Center did not provide the massive salary to Dr. Bignatoli out of the goodness of their heart, but rather because she was bringing in significant research funds to the facility. I've been talking about this since I started this podcast. The NIH funds universities, these researchers. It is a money laundering scheme. Can't wait to see what they have in store for us next. One thing I've had to remind folks that isn't a theory, but is actually a fact, but they link it as a, they think it is a conspiracy theory. But again, if you just look into it, like I do a little bit quickly become a conspiracy fact. This from the actual website of Idaho power. Okay. Not Breitbart.com or Fox nation or some crazy aliens walk among us.org website. This is Idaho power company serving and to pay for it idaho power meteorologists monitor winter storms as they pass across the central idaho mountains 
pretty normal, looking for opportunities to increase the amount of snow that falls in drainages that feed the Snake River. Increase the amount of snow, huh? The goal of our cloud seeding program is to provide additional water for Idaho Power's hydropower projects, which provide reliable, affordable, clean energy for our customers. Increased snowpack also benefits irrigators, winter recreationists, river use users, and fish and wildlife. Okay, yeah, more water, sure. The original program began in 2003, 2003 to increase snow accumulation in the south and middle forks of the Payette River watershed. In 2008, Idaho Power expanded its cloud seeding efforts by enhancing a program operated by a group of counties and other stakeholders in the upper Snake River systems above Milner Dam. Other stakeholders, hmm. Idaho Power operates remote-controlled ground-based generators and aircraft to target the Payette, Boise, and Wood River basins, as well as the upper Snake River system. Analysis conducted by Idaho Power since 2003 indicate the annual snowpack in the Payette River Basin increased an average of approximately 12%. The typical cloud seeding season runs from November 1st through April 30th. Well, I've seen a lot more since then. Oh, <clears throat> and there is such a thing as the NAWMC, North American Weather Modification Council, not some hidden crime syndicate like James Bond's, James Bond's Spectre, Cloud seeding technology, a combination of silver nitrate and potassium iodide indiscriminately spraying over the country since the 1960s in cloud seeding programs designed to increase rainfall. What? The field of weather modification requires the use of specialized equipment to carry out operations and research. Cloud seeding materials, primarily silver iodide, have been extensively reviewed with regard to their environmental safety. Uh-huh. Examples of some of the commonly used equipment, further explanation of the basic methods and technologies, and more on environmental stewardship can be found here. Again, this is the NAWMC website. Silver iodide is the primary, I'm probably saying that wrong, seeding agent used in cloud seeding. It's tremendously efficient as an ice nucleus, allows it to be used in minute quantities. Silver iodide yeah, has been extensively reviewed as to its environmental safety during the last half century. I'll tell you about that in a second. The published findings of this research clearly show, in bold, no environmentally harmful effects arising from cloud seeding have been observed or are expected to occur. On their website, you can... Quote, watch dry ice fragments create ice crystals in a supercooled cloud in just seconds. Maybe Nebraska should sue them for all the damage that their hail did to those solar panels I told you about last week. Um, I'd call that environmentally harmful effect, wouldn't you? Uh, beginning this month, Idaho Power customers can expect to see the following percentage increases in prices this year. Did you think this was free? Residential customers, 4.69%. Small general service customers, 3.48%. Large general service customers, 8.5%. Sorry, large power customers, 10.63%. It's going to cost you. Irrigation customers, 7.88%. The approved power cost adjustment would allow Idaho Power to increase its revenue by approximately $200 million, according to the company's application. That price would be spread equally over two years to mitigate impact on customers. In the meantime, Idaho Power wants to change a state-level policy that compensates households 
with rooftop solar panels for the excess energy they generate and send back to the grid. Wasn't that the entire incentive program in the first place? The policy called net metering allows customers to receive credits on their utility bills equivalent to retail electricity rates when they produce more energy than they need. For every kilowatt hour of solar energy sent to the grid, the customer receives a kilowatt hour credit. The state's largest electric utility is proposing to lower the compensation and bring about other mark changes that solar advocates say could hurt the burgeoning renewable energy business and reduce the resiliency on local electricity grids and probably put a big crimp in the cryptocurrency farming. But that's another story. It ain't easy being in the Green New Deal, yo. All right. Now, here's the key. The silver ion is among the most toxic of heavy metal ions, particularly to microorganisms and to fish. To e the ease with which AG silver forms insoluble compounds, however, reduces its importance as an environmental containment. AG is not likely to concentrate to harmful levels through either terrestrial or aquatic food chains, unless you turn it into hail. There is some possibility that AG from cloud seeding will retard growth of algae, fungi, bacteria, and fish in fresh water. If it can do it for fish, what can it do to humans? What can it do to poultry? What can it do to cattle? Additional laboratory investigations are needed. Inha inhibitions of aquatic microorganisms would interfere with the cycle that returns essential nutrients to the water. AG in air and water should be regularly monitored. Uh-huh. Iodine in AGL poses no environmental danger. Mm -hmm. Organic seeding agents currently being proposed are not likely to be toxic in either the short or the long run, but dispersed or proprietary organic compounds should be prohibited unless their composition is fully revealed. Aha, there it is, proprietary organic compounds. We don't really know what those planes in the sky are leaving in their trail, do we? Sounds like mRNA, fake meat, cubic zirconium diamonds, Chinese stuff on eBay or which you can buy at Canal Street in New York City, Pravda and Gucci knockoffs. Do we trust a guy like Bill Gates or Becky Pringle to tell us the truth? They haven't earned our trust. So no. Steve, what do you think? Well, Steve, I was uh, I just spent four days in Idaho this past weekend. And uh, interestingly enough, we had pulled into this beautiful little township called Bellevue, Idaho, about 10 miles south of Sun Valley. And I had noticed all these private jets flying in, so I asked one of the guys um, at the cafe that we ate at that night, and he said, oh, they're having a billionaire combo up at Sun Valley. And I said, interesting. Well, by the next morning, I noticed jets flying all over the north end above that area, and they were trailing it. And before you know it, halfway through the day, after we got through the Craters of the Moon um, National Park, there was cloud cover all to the north of us. So they know how to dial up and say, we need cloud cover, and they get it. They're going to get us one way or the other. Stay tuned for my quotes of the week. With Columbia, Tennessee-based EnergizeHealth.com, you lose fat fast, simply and naturally, without restrictive exercise or cardboard dry, tasteless food. Revolutionize your health with this proprietary 88-day science from John and Chelsea Jubilee. People report getting off medications and reversing ailments. Energy, mental clarity, and alertness go through the roof. Look and feel many years younger and oftentimes unrecognizable. I know. I'm an alumnus and lost 70 pounds of fat with John and Chelsea and wouldn't have energy to do three shows a week without it. 
Hit the link in show notes for your free consultation and discount. Money back guarantee so you have nothing to lose but unhealthy fat. EnergizedHealth.com. Hey, everybody. This is uh, Joseph Padilla. I'm the uh, school board representative for Zone 4 for Wilson County, Tennessee. And I'm out here on the uh, Mill Creek View podcast. Welcome to my quotes for the day. But before I share, I want to remind everyone to subscribe to the Mill Creek View podcast. It's free. It doesn't hurt. It's easy. You just hit the subscribe button on Spotify or Rumble or iTunes and follow us and you'll never miss one of these shows. And I hope you like it. War is cruelty. There is no use trying to reform it. The crueler it is, the sooner it will be over. William Tecumseh Sherman. I am not here to pass civilities or compliments with you, but on other business. I have stood your meanness as long as I intend to. You have played the part of a damn scoundrel and are a coward. And if you were any part of a man, I would slap your jaws and force you to resent it. You may as well not issue any more orders to me, for I will not obey them. And as I say to you that if you ever again try to interfere with me or cross my path, it will be the peril of your life. Nathan Bedford Forrest. He also said, abolish the Royal League and the Ku Klux Klan. Let us come together and stand together. We have but one flag, one country. Let us stand together. We may differ in color, but not in sentiment. Bet you've never heard that before. If you surrender, you shall be treated as prisoners of war. But if I have to storm your works, you may expect no quarter. Wow, Nathan Bedford Forrest. I went to, into the army worth a million and a half dollars, and I came out a beggar. Nathan Forrest. I love the old government in 1861. I love the old constitution yet. I think it is the best government in the world. If administered as it was before the war, I do not hate it. I'm opposing now only the radical revolutionists who are trying to destroy it. I believe that party to be composed, as I know it, is in Tennessee of the worst men on God's earth, men who would not hesitate at no crime and who have only one object in view to enrich themselves. Nathan Bedford Forrest. Wow, what a rebel, huh? That's it for this episode. Really hope you liked it. Thank you, Eric Jacobson, for keeping the memory of Dixieland alive. It's good history. Until next time, this is your host, Steve Abramowitz, editor-in-chief of mcview.us. Peace in our time.
Any views or opinions represented on the podcast are personal and belong solely to the creator and do not represent those of people, institutions, or organizations that the creator may or may not be associated with in a professional or personal capacity unless explicitly stated.